Welcome to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerich. Thanks for being here. My guest today is Allie Cashel, who will join me from her home in Burlington, Vermont. Allie's a remarkable woman, an author, an activist, and an empath. She's a force of nature. Once she gets involved with a project, intentional or not, she's going to turn it into something astonishing. Lyme's disease, her thesis, her book, business, speaking engagements, her next book. Once she gets a hold of it, watch out world. I'm looking forward to this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, you guys, it's Sharpie. I'm the guest from episode number 20. I like to travel to the edge of the known universe and peer over the edge to see what's out there. It's sort of like digging below the surface, tapping into the electromagnetic network of fungi and tree roots to try and figure out what they're talking about. Spread the word to anyone who you think may be interested in expanding their horizon and growing their universe. Thanks, guys. Tune in soon. Allie, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for dialing in and joining me remotely in the pod ship. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a pleasure. Well, you're in the Northeast where there's been a bit of a heat wave on top of everything else that's going on in the world. I'm in Park City, Utah, where summer is coming on. And boy, do we not live in interesting times. I have never experienced a, a series of months quite like the one that we're in right now. Right. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how the rest of 2020 goes for us. I know. And talk about not knowing. We believe we have a better grip on what's going to happen in the near future than we really do, or we believe we have more control over it. And boy, it doesn't feel like we know anything about what it's going to look like 30 days from now, six months from now, or a year from now, just the world and our lives. And Really interesting times. Yeah, and I think sitting in that uncertainty brings up some interesting stuff for all of us. So excited to talk through that today. Uh-huh. Yeah, we can talk about all kinds of things, you know, health, mortality, illness, pandemics, but really interestingly, how they affect us, how the all of it affects us individually. Yeah, I think so many of these big issues that weigh on us here in 2020, I've heard so many people say, you know, the hits keep coming with 2020, right? It's like, who knows what's going to happen next? And when these big themes come up for us or, or these big incidents come up for us, both as a culture, but also as individual people, I think it sort of puts into perspective the way that we're moving through the world is not necessarily this clear, predictable path or this clear, predictable line, but is something that takes weird twists and takes weird turns. And we need to be sort of ready and prepared to see what those are and um, and to be able to roll with the punches a little bit. Yeah. Makes me think of the word fluid, you know, being able to flow the way water flows around rocks and in a river and being able to be fluid, willing to be fluid, able to be fluid. And then as you referenced, being aware of what are we feeling when we hear news or we experience things personally, and then being comfortable with the feelings, not trying to push them back, suppress them. It seems like the nerve endings are raw, right? Like we're right out on the edge and feeling everything. Oh, definitely. There's something I've been thinking about a lot recently is 
the news cycle that we're in right now, and, and as I mentioned, right, this year is maybe unique in that we have not dealt with things at the scope or with the intensity that we're dealing with. But I don't think human beings are prepared to deal with the onslaught of information that we receive every day by tuning into the news or just living in this digital world that we live in right now. Our brains aren't really wired to be able to take the information and this amount of information that we're receiving. So I think what you said that's really interesting is, is how do we feel when we read something in the news or when we, we see a headline about the rising number of cases of coronavirus or perhaps an, another Black man who's been murdered, right? These are all things that are, seem to be happening more and more in our news cycle. And I think it's really challenging to think about how we feel or even to know exactly how we feel about a certain thing when the amount of information that's coming at us is so persistent and so overwhelming. And I think to do that work and to sort of engage with these topics and engage in these conversations that can be really difficult in an authentic way that's in touch with your actual lived experience and emotional experiences of these topics, it requires a real mindfulness. And it's a conscious choice to do that, I think, because at least I can only speak for myself, but when I see headline after headline after headline, I have no idea how I feel until I take some space to actually process and reflect on some of the things that are going on in the world right now. I couldn't agree more. How do we do that? I think that's an interesting exploration. So for me, in my part of the world here on Thursday, June 25th, it's 10, 15 in the morning. You know, I made a choice in no small part based on what you're talking about. We certainly haven't evolved to be able to handle all of the incoming information at the pace at which it comes in and sort and digest and integrate. So this morning I decided to get up early and go up into the mountains. I was up at between 8,500 and 9,000 feet walking around in this, what I would consider to be an old growth aspen grove. You know, the aspen trees are big and sturdy and everything's in, you know, the effulgence of spring is, is you know, very evident everywhere. I need to connect with the earth. I need to connect with the energy of I'm of the mountains and of the lakes and, and of the rivers and streams and things like that. And I needed to go connect. I made a choice, a decision, I guess it was yesterday, that a couple of mornings a week, I'm just going to get up real early and I'm going to go to the mountains and I'm going to go to the woods. And to get some quiet time and ponder, not have a phone anywhere nearby, not have any incoming information and appreciate the fact that, you know, we are still here and... The trees are still growing and, you know, I, I, I hope and think that, you know, life will go on. It's just different. I think we need to give ourselves that time. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because I've been committing to a really similar thing in finding that time outside and recognizing that as the seasons change and as the world keeps spinning, the only constant that we can be sure of is change, right? And to find groundedness and to find quiet in that has been immensely important for me as I try and process everything that's been going on in the world. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we went into lockdown in March and I'm here in Vermont and it was still very much winter. And every day I was going on like a tromp outside and putting on my snow boots and my gloves and walking through the snow. And then as, as the weeks passed and the snow melted and the mud came out, 
you started to see the little green sprouts and buds coming on to the, to the trees. I was doing this walk every day and I found such peace in recognizing that change of nature and being able to observe that change of nature and realizing that that change was going to happen no matter what I did, right? I could feel like the world had closed or the world had stalled or my life had stalled, but this change was persistent. And as I think about a lot of the big issues that we're dealing with as a culture right now, that idea of the persistence of change has become comforting to me in that I know that things will continue to move forward and my role in having those things move forward or or all of our role in having those things move forward requires that consciousness, right? We have to plug in to say, how do we fit into this persistent change or this persistent evolution or how will we encourage it to happen in the way that it's supposed to? But to know that it will be there has been really affirming for me. Yeah, having some touchstones, I agree. The seasons, I know where approximately where you grew up, you know, as far as latitude goes and, you know, where there are four distinct seasons, right? And I'm I'm of the very same latitude, right? So four very distinct seasons. I've always marked time or season or there's very definitely change. For me, it's helpful, right? The things that we're familiar with, because everybody doesn't live in a place where there are four distinct seasons. I went down to Columbia a year and a half ago and I, you know, right on the equator. And I was like, wow, it, it never changes. <laughs> really 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. That's bizarre. You know, when one is accustomed to something else, but I think it's very important to plug in is how I think of it. We don't have the luxury of unplugging from what's happening in the world around us. And then in turn, maybe we're able to find some balance, right? Some internal equilibrium that is in finding it, we find some sense of ease. I find myself feeling unsettled on a regular basis. Oh, as do I. I think in general, many of us have a fear of change. I know when I was a little kid, I was always terrified of change. My parents moved a lot. Every time we would move, you know, it would feel like it's the end of the world. Every birthday I had, I remember feeling so afraid of what was to come because change is scary and not knowing what something's going to look like at the other side of transition can be really scary. But I also think it can be so exciting if I can ground myself enough in the acceptance of it and in the acceptance of that uncertainty. It can be exciting to think about what comes through those moments of change and what comes through those moments of transition. We have a uh, a mutual friend, and I'm going to reference this. It's kind of fun to do this in, in these podcasts. So ATBS, the podcast, has been out live since the 15th of June, so Monday, a week ago. And one of the episodes was recorded with a mutual friend. His name is Matt Seiler. He said the following approximately, that he's intrigued by this idea of change for good. Things are changing for good. And I can't remember exactly where he said he had heard it. But then he went on eloquently, as he always does, to say, you know, uh, interesting, the different play on words there, right? Like some things are going to change for good for all time, I suspect. What are the things that are changing in the other sense of the word for good, for the good of humanity, for the good of the human tribe? And as you have said very eloquently as well, you know, change is inevitable. 
what is it that we're going to carry forth from these experiences that we're having? What are we learning? And yeah, you know, like, what do you think? What do you what do you think we're learning? I mean, so I guess that's a big question. But uh, <laughs> no, I love what, it. Allie, what are we learning from all this? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, that's a that's a classic Matt Seiler insight. So very happy that you shared it. I think he's right, right? I think that some things are changing for good. And when we see things, just to bring up the pandemic again, for an example, right? I wonder after we come through this, are we going to lose this sort of casual joy that comes with like human touch, right? I think about every time I've hugged someone who's not my partner or my parents or my siblings, you know, it comes with this twinge of like, am I making a mistake? Should I be doing this? And for context, I'm immunocompromised. So I carry that weight with me, especially right now during the pandemic. And I worry that some of those things might change for good, right? That we might lose some of the joy of like being in a concert surrounded by a group of people and, and sharing that experience all together. Will we ever have that in the same way that we did before? That might be a for good that we could perceive negatively. But I wonder if we need to perceive these losses always as negatively or if we can reframe them to say, how can we grow through it? And I'm not sure if at large as a culture, if we're starting to think about, you know, growth. Professionally, people are always talking about growth mindset, right? How can, how can we grow through any of these experiences or mistakes? I hope that we can do that even in this broader context to say, if change for good, for the good of humanity, for the good of mankind is our goal, is our vision, how we want to use the time that we have on the earth. And I think for some people it is, like for me, it very, very much is. Then these feelings of loss or fear of, of negative change, I know is going to be a part of the fabric of that bigger overarching picture of change for good in the positive context. It's sort of the only way that I can keep my uh, eternal optimism is to find a way to recognize those losses or those moments of hardship as a stepping stone to move forward as sort of another book I can put on my bookshelf to like clock my knowledge or uh, to grow as an individual to hopefully be able to continue that path of change for good in the good concept. So I think he's right that things might be changing for good in, in a permanent way, but I hope that we can use those changes that are happening for good to further the growth and help to uplift and empower each other as we move forward through life. I don't know if that answered your question though. <laughs> the big, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, when you said another book, I thought maybe you were thinking of uh, another book you might write. So this is a perfect segue into mentioning that, you know, you wrote a book and I'd love to explore this a little bit, Suffering the Silence, Chronic Lyme Disease in an Age of Denial. You're the co-founder and president of Suffering the Silence, the community, yes. which is nonprofit. So you've written a book, you're an author, and let's talk about that a little bit. I still, to this day, don't think of myself as like a, a writer. I'm a much better talker than I am a writer, I think. But the way that the book came to be, I think it sort of had to exist in some way. All through my adolescence, I dealt with a really aggressive Lyme and tick-borne disease. My senior year of high school, it became so bad that it had gone to my brain and I struggled to speak. I was struggling to read. I was in six car accidents in just six weeks. And the medical community um, is really divided on how they think about Lyme and particularly persistent Lyme or tick-borne disease. 
And I had a really traumatic experience with one of the best pediatric infectious disease doctors in the country where he told me that it was physically impossible that I was dealing with any sort of infection and that I was actually having a mental breakdown and was regressing to the point of infancy. So that's why I was like struggling to speak or read or drive a car, all these things that I had come to know in my glorious teenage self. But he told me that before he had ever done any testing, uh, not done any physical examination, just by looking at my file. And I think that dismissal is not something that is unique to me. That happens to young women in the medical world over and over and over again. But for me, it was a really silencing act. And it made me question my confidence um, and understanding of what was going on in my own body and what was going on in the world. I questioned my perception of reality. And it made me not ever want to talk about my experience with illness um, ever, ever again. My dad also has lived with Lyme and tick-borne disease for years. And even in my family, we did not talk about our experiences or what it felt for us, how it impacted us as people, how it impacted our identity. When I got to college, it was the year after this terrible neurological flare. And I like completely lied to people uh, when I first got to college. I didn't share anything about what I had gone through because I was so afraid that people wouldn't believe me if I spoke up or if I told my story. So I made my way through college, you know, eventually in some close relationships, I started to talk about it a little bit. And I was a senior at Bard College and at Bard, every senior has to complete a senior thesis. And I was uh, studying written arts, mostly because I was daunted by the idea of writing a senior project in literature, but I was much more interested in literature than I was in writing. It just seems like maybe it would be easier to write a creative piece than a analytical work. So I had this idea that I was going to write a series of short stories, of horror short stories for my senior project. So I took a first stab at it and I hand in my first short stories to my advisor. He was sort of like, Ali, these are bad. Um, I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> these are not good. Uh, you should not move forward with this as your senior project. Can we think of something else? And he encouraged me to write about myself. And he was like, write about something you know, write about something that you've experienced. And this experience with Lyme and with that dismissal from that medical professional kept coming up for me. And I hadn't said it out loud yet. I would go to try and write about it. And I would have like a little literal block that I couldn't I couldn't type the words onto the screen or I couldn't write them onto the paper. It was too hard for me to talk about it or to address the experience that I had had. I tell my senior project advisor this. His name is Michael Ives. He's a wonderful, wonderful poet. I encourage everyone to check him out if they can. But Michael told me, you're not the only person who has been through something like this, right? Like, talk to other people, see what happens. He said it all so obvious that that's what I should be doing. And the thought had never crossed my mind because I had never really talked about this stuff before ever. And so I put out an ad for people who wanted to talk about their experiences, specifically with Lyme disease. And I was overwhelmed by the number of people who reached out and said that they wanted to talk. Was that in like a student paper or, or on campus or was that? A... I put it online and I put it in a local doctor's office. And all of a sudden, I was thrown into this world where I needed to be having these conversations about something that I had never talked about before and something that I was really terrified to talk about. But I found through these conversations, and I recorded them all, and ultimately those stories are really like the heart of the book, is, is the stories of other patients. I found through them that there was this theme. 
But I was not the only person who felt afraid to talk about my experience. Um, and I was not the only person who was afraid that other people wouldn't believe me if I, if I told them what had happened. And ultimately, um, for my senior thesis, I concluded that series of interviews with an interview with my dad. And I was so scared to do the interview. Like at this point I had done, I don't know, like 30 interviews probably with other people. And I was so afraid because I was afraid of the things that were going to come up that we as a family had never talked about. But it was an incredibly healing experience ultimately to have that conversation and, and to find our way through it and to find empathy in each other in a way that maybe we hadn't before and to apologize for things that we hadn't apologized for before. That interview and, and really all of the interviews allowed me to figure out how I could tell my own story. And after I graduated that collection of interviews and, and my story, I found out there was interest in turning it into a book. And, and that's sort of how the book came to be. And it, it grew over the next year as I conducted more interviews and built it out a little more to understand sort of why this medical dismissal is so prevalent in the world of Lyme. But I think it was really like those interviews that are the heart of it. And as I said, I, I think of myself as a, as a better talker than I am a writer. And those conversations are what built that book. I think those conversations are in many ways what have like inspired the rest of my work in the illness and disability community. Because you've been at this now a while, right? You've been, yeah. you talk about being a senior and then you talk about the next year. And I don't think you're not yet 30. Is that correct? No, not yet. I'm 29 and I'm going to, I'm going to stay 29 for as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that said, you've been at this for quite some time, right? Like you now have the organization and, you know, the nonprofit dedicated to breaking the stigma surrounding chronic illness and disability, which, wow, like how relevant is that every day always but you know in the world in which we live and we were talking before we started recording here about these you know just listening to you you know these are conversations that need to take place they need to be aired they, we need to be willing i think and actually have some desire to step into the challenge right you know as individuals as communities uh, as a, a global tribe I think you're so right. And I think as we do that, I mean, I can just speak from my own experience at like after Suffering the Silence was published, it like really changed the dynamic of my family and not just in the way that we talk about illness, but really in the way that we talk about a lot of challenging things, the way we talk about politics, the way we talk about mental health. We hadn't been great at that before. And I think that Suffering the Silence sort of helped to break our silence in many ways. And we started communicating with each other, I think, in a way that has allowed for us to grow and has been hard and challenging and weird in many ways. But I think having that first scary conversation and like navigating that first scary conversation allowed for future conversations to be infused with a certain level of empathy and compassion that we hadn't had before. Not that every conversation that my family has is, is great. It's not. But I do think we've grown a lot through that sort of initial breaking of the silence. And I'm grateful that I think that is the case for many people who I've worked with through Suffering the Silence, the organization, in relationships with those folks and also in their families as well. I think the bigger theme of breaking silence around things we're afraid to talk about has been really resonant for people. I am smiling again. As I often find myself in these conversations through this ATBS, the podcast adventure that I'm on, 
I have two daughters. I'm the <laughs> proud father of two daughters who are 18 and 19 years old. And as I sit here and I listen to you talking about your family and how things have changed over the years, you know, through you not being silent, having had that really indelible experience with that practitioner, probably had a white coat on, if I had to guess. You're right. Yes. Had a white coat and a name tag. And, you know, I live in a world with white coats and name tags as well. Being a, a cancer thriver myself, it's one of those interesting chronic illnesses that people can't generally see. And, you know, the people in the white coats, many of us tend to roll with a perception that they've got the answer. And there you were as a, you know, as an 18 year old or thereabouts, completely dismissed that explanation that you gave of being dismissed based on that person having read a chart and how that has affected your life, how it has sent you down a path, which you continue to explore and seems from my perspective, do a very good job of. And this is a reoccurring theme here where we as individuals ought to be, I think, discerning enough, interested enough, engaged and curious enough to be willing to question what we hear and also take responsibility for our selves and our own health and wellness. Yeah. I mean, that resonates with me so much. I think we have to question what we hear and what we see and see if it feels resonant with the way we move through the world or with our own perception of the world. And I think we also have to feel comfortable questioning ourselves and things that we have believed to be true for however long. We need to feel comfortable with being wrong, with making mistakes, with having those perceptions be wrong. That year when I was at my sickest, I was like terrified of acknowledging that I was dealing with any mental health struggle at the time because I had sort of thought that people would think I was either mentally ill or I was either physically ill. I didn't understand the connection there. And I was like firm in that belief. And as I've questioned that, and as I've like questioned myself, I've come to understand that my mental health and my physical health are inextricably linked. That when I'm struggling emotionally, my physical body is struggling as well. And then my physical body is struggling. My mind and, and my identity sometimes struggles with it. And that was like something I just believed to be so false for so long and like got in fights with people about and was all up in arms about as that 18 year old self. And like, I was proved wrong, right? And that's something that's a small example that's connected to that previous story. But I think accepting that we can be wrong and that we can make mistakes and that our minds can be changed when we're presented with new information it's uncomfortable, but I think it's like vitally important to pursuing that like bigger change for good we were talking about earlier. Let's dig in a little bit deeper to the importance of and discomfort that may come with really challenging conversations. Yeah. As they relate to, well, anything. Difficult conversations I see as a way to strengthen relationships rather than to break them. To share how we feel about things or the impact of somebody's statement on us or belief system on us allows for the other person ultimately to know us better and to know more about the way that we move through the world and 
the things we carry with us as we do. We're often so afraid of messing up or hurting people's feelings or saying the wrong thing that we assume that like our intentions and having good intentions as we interact and move through the world is like enough of armor to carry with us. And so we don't often feel a need to have challenging conversations because if I move through the world saying, well, I'm a good intentioned person, I don't ever want to hurt anybody else. Like if I do, like that, I guess they are going to have to deal with it and, and deal with it on their own. Right. But I think that's an issue because I think that intentions are sort of irrelevant and it's the impact that we have on other people that is the thing that we need to be paying attention to. We also need to be paying attention to the impact that other people have on us. And to be able to talk about that, I think is often where we can navigate some of those really difficult or scary conversations with the most ease. I think about talking for the first time about illness with my family, right? There was a lot of things that people said or that people did that ultimately were really hurtful, even if they didn't intend them to be hurtful in the moment. And instead of calling them out and being like, you did this thing and you're a bad person because of it, or I I hold all this anger at you because of it, a lot of what I've tried to do and what I encourage many people in, in the STS community to do is to talk about the way that people's actions or statements make us feel, the impact that it has on us as a person. And if we can move our conversations from like, this is true and this is not true, from these black and white spaces of I'm on the good side and you're on the bad side, and instead say, this is how I feel about this issue and this is how it relates to my sense of self or my identity. When you do these things, it makes me feel this way. I think it creates space for us to be able to bring more compassion and love and empathy into those hard conversations and to navigate them without our armor up because we'll be focusing more on our perceptions of something that has happened rather than on telling people what they have done or on telling people what is or isn't true. That works like around personal interactions with people, but I've also found that it's been fairly successful in like conversations about politics or anything else that can be like, end up feeling really black and white. It's been a cool path forward, at least for me in those spaces. Compassionate communication. Right. If one is has done any research or studying on, you know, what is compassionate communication? You know, what are true feelings versus faux feelings? You know, there you are. You just gave a great description of it. And I think we could all be well served to learn. If I could think of this episode and, you know, you've said a lot of things, you know, I go back after the fact and I write episode notes, you know, so that there are program notes that'll, that'll accompany the episode. That's one of them right there at wherever we are, 40 some odd minutes into the conversation that look, difficult conversations here is if somebody wants to go and research something new and learn a new skill or become familiar with a new skill, compassionate communication. And you just gave a wonderful description of what it is. When you say this, I feel this, right? Bringing it back to ourselves. And so thank you for bringing that up. I think that's that in the world in which we live today, if we are each willing to communicate compassionately, non-dogmatic delivery and non-judgmental receipt of, you know, receiving of information makes for, you know, that's part of the compassionate communication. And when I talk about ATBS, the podcast, I'm like, when I have conversations that are non-judgmental and non-dogmatic, like these aren't the ultimate answers. 
We're not saying this has to be, but these are some things to think about. Yeah. I, I also think that when we are having some of these like really difficult conversations, if you take compassionate communication out of the rhythm of it, it's so easy to get stuck because I'll say like, uh, well, you said X, X, and X, and it's wrong. And the other person will say, well, that's not what I meant to say. And then all of a sudden we're arguing about what the person's intention of like what the abstract thing is that they were trying to say, rather than saying like, hey, you said this thing and it made me feel frustrated and it, it brought up this other experience I've had before, um, which I think is, is why it's making me feel even more frustrated. Then the person can say, I'm sorry, I made you feel frustrated. Here's what my experience is. And here's what I'm really trying to say, the heart of what I'm trying to say. And then we're instead talking about like, what's at the heart of the message we're trying to convey here. And I think a lot of times, especially if you're having these conversations with people you love or people you know, a lot of times, like the heart of what people are trying to say is really similar. It's like, think about abortion, for example, right? It's this like black and white issue that people are on one side or on the other side. And there's like not a lot of space to talk about what's going on there. But like at the heart of, I think, both sides of an issue like that is this desire to protect life, right? From my perspective, I'm a, I'm a very pro-choice person, right? I believe in the desire to protect the life of the woman who is making that choice. If we can talk about then like the heart of what is in the conversation and the way that those things make us feel, I think that we'll be able to find common ground more quickly rather than like staying on our, on our sides and having our armor up and like talking about why the other person is wrong or trying to win all the time. If it's more about like, how does what the person say make you feel about the heart of these issues? we might be able to find common ground more quickly. And, and I, I don't think that's the case for everything. Um, and maybe the abortion example is a bad example, but it's just, I, I found that to be really helpful. Well, there are so many issues that are in today's world, and, and maybe it's not different than any other time in history. We just have them, as you said, early, early on, right? That we just, we're receiving so much information so quickly that if we can find common ground, let's find common ground because we are, so much more similar than we are different. As individuals, as humans, male, female, color, demographic, where we live, we're so much more similar than different. We can find that common ground in the similarities. Through compassionate communication, we can, we can work on the differences or we can at least have dialogue about the differences without feeling like we have to change somebody or somebody's perspective. I don't have to have people think or believe what I think or believe. No, I think the world would be a sad place if we if we were all the same and we all believe <laughs> the same things. I think like that dissonance and and the the difference between us is sort of what makes us beautiful, but we have to feel comfortable being able to talk about that difference. And I think a way to find that comfort, exactly as you said, is sometimes to find like the piece of common ground that we can stand on safely to then explore that difference and to find like a place of acceptance to say like, you are a person and I am a person and we both have our own emotional experiences of the world. And both of those emotional experiences of the world are important and are valid and are relevant then let's like safely explore what those differences are without like pointing fingers or villainizing people when we don't need to villainize people. There are of course 
situations and incidents that happen in the world where like, you know, it's important to call people out when they do something that is like hurtful or wrong. And I would never say that there's not, but I'm more talking about those conversations you're having like over the dinner table or at Thanksgiving or wherever it is that we're like so afraid of having these difficult conversations. (laughs) Those are the places that I think we can try and find that safe island that then explore and celebrate the differences amongst our opinions. Well said. Well said, Allie. I have a question for you. Totally separate. I did an episode with Chris Waddell and he brought up the idea, reality that there are heroes among us. We see it, you know, when you drive by a hospital or you drive, you know, like heroes work here, right? There are people doing heroic things all the time in our world. They're not athletes and they're not celebrities. They're just human beings performing heroic acts every day. I'm going to put you right on the spot. Who would be an everyday hero in your world? I love people um, so much. And I think that people, for the most part, are like so kind, so brave and so cool. So it's like sort of hard for me to pick a specific person because I think individuals are, are spectacular. But I think I would say it's people who like are speaking about their experiences of the world with bravery and like authenticity, telling their stories with bravery and authenticity. Those people are absolute heroes to me because those people are creating opportunities for all of us to to become more empathetic to like connect with each other in an authentic way and are modeling what it looks like to speak up and like speak the truth. And I've seen that at all of the protests that have been happening recently. I see that in my own apartment all the time when Calvin, my partner does it. I see it in so many people, but those moments, I guess, are moments of heroism that I love to celebrate. Allie Cashel, I think when this episode goes live, you are one of the everyday heroes. <laughs> I don't know, but I am. I, no, I, I do. So Allie Cashel, I appreciate you joining me today on ATBS, the podcast. Before we go, Allie Cashel's written the book, Suffering the Silence. You can find that wherever you find your books. Sufferingthesilence.org. Is that correct? Or sufferingthesilence.com? Either, actually. We've hooked it up so that no matter what you type in, you're going to get there. That's what we like. (laughs) So check that out. And then, of course, in the program notes, I'll have all kinds of information on where you can find what you're doing, Allie. I am extremely grateful that you're willing to come with me on this journey on ATBS, the podcast, spend some of your time with us. And uh, what a pleasure it is to speak with you and get to know you better. Oh, same here. Thank you so much for having me. It's, It's been an honor. Thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful day and enjoy the cooler weather in the Northeast after a bit of a a, a June heat wave. I'm going to put my feet in Lake Champlain later today and I'm going to be the (laughs) happiest person in the world. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Allie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening and spending your time with me and Allie here on ATBS, the podcast. I believe Allie is another one of the heroes in our midst. 
I encourage you to check out Allie and her various projects at sufferingthesilence.org. Until next time, be kind and stay healthy.